Welcome to another episode of Nipe Story. This is a fortnightly podcast that brings you audio versions of short story fiction from Kenya and across the continent. I'm your host, Kevin Mwachiro. And on today's episode, we're featuring Andaki by Kenyanjui Kombani. It was the tap on the shoulder that stopped the young man in his tracks. A sharp, urgent tap that bore into his collarbone. The pain shot through his shoulder and he whipped his head around. The panting, sweaty face of a shorter, darker man met his. Ah, Kocha! His face broke into a smile. The shorter man waved his hand as if in surrender. He bent over, his hands on his knees, still panting like a petrified thief who had survived a mob attack. He coughed and mumbled something. The young man removed the large headphones that covered half his head. I've been calling out for you. Kocha's words came in short bursts. He coughed again. Those headphones will be the death of you. Can you even hear a car approaching? The young man shrugged and turned his head toward the road. Kocha followed his gaze. He probably got an answer to the question he had posed because he looked down again and coughed some more. The road was flanked on both sides by hundreds of traders with wares sprawled on the ground, on wheelbarrows and on platforms made from materials ranging from pallets, roughly hewn stones, metal frames and sticks. Only a madman would drive on a road at a speed high enough to knock anyone down. Are you okay? The young man asked Kocha. He pulled a device from his pocket and touched a button. Nigofomo, I'm fine, came the labored answer. Zawapi, where are you going? The young man responded, I'm just making my rounds. Coach's eyes fell on the bag the young man was holding, then stayed there for enough time to make the young man's eyes flinch. Then both men looked away. I've been searching everywhere for you, Coach told him. Then, After taking a long breath, he continued. Our game was moved forward to this afternoon. I have to raise a team. Wah! The young man's jaws dropped. Yes, you should get a phone, man. This idea of running all over to look for you, Haileti Shangwe, it is not pleasing at all. If the young man heard the complaint about the phone, it didn't register on his face. He stared into the distance as if there was a phone for him in the middle of the street. How many people have you gathered? he asked. Three, Kocha responded weakly. Three? The young man's face looked like he had been hit by the butt of a policeman's G3 rifle. What time is kickoff? Three o'clock. Kocha straightened up. He was still breathing heavily. With a sweep of his finger, he wiped the sweat off his brow then snapped the finger expertly to splash the sweat into a ditch next to them. And you know this is a do-or-die game for us. Will you make it? Coach's eyes briefly scoured the bag the younger man held 
before moving up. Their eyes locked for a moment, and then Joe Bow looked away. I have to take care of something first, the young man said, staring past Kocha. Jobo didn't stop gazing off, even when Kocha slid into an alley next to an electrical repair shop marked Kaka Fundi Waredio. His mind was elsewhere. He was looking past the man and far into the crowd. After a few seconds, he slipped his headphones back on and walked ahead, clutching the bag tighter. Still, he did not move toward his destination. He made a long detour into Grau, lay smack in the middle of Dandora, face one and two. A tall stone fence now surrounded the grounds, the product of tough wars between the big church neighboring it and the many land grabbers. Jobo remembered the fights that had been waged for control of Grau, pitting angry men against each other each bolstered by teams of hirelings armed with crude weapons. Most times, the winner was decided by the size of the gang he could hire. Having the right land ownership papers was no evidence of ownership. Each party had genuine title deeds signed and stamped by the Ministry of Land, which they did not hesitate to wave at their opponents. Currently, the church had hold on the land, courtesy of the area member of parliament who had made it a campaign pledge to secure the grounds. The church had quickly put up the fence, but Jobo knew that the ownership was only temporary until someone with more clout than the MP prevailed. Only time would tell. The cartels were biding their time. It would not be a surprise to soon see a block of houses being built using stones from the wall. This was Dandora. How his brother Robert had found himself amongst the marauding gangs one afternoon remained a story to be told for generations to come. He had been hanging out at Bays when someone came in with the news that there was some quick money to be made. All one needed to do was obtain an ugly-looking weapon that would scare people away. The prospect of earning 500 shillings was too tempting, and Robert found himself shouting whores at another group of youth, daring them to come closer if they wanted to meet their maker. It was after a lot of shouting and daring that he had been told that the other side was paying a thousand shillings and he immediately switched sides. Oftentimes, those confrontations did not turn violent. After all, the gangs knew their rival gangs and would meet in the estates after the financiers had departed. At other times, though, especially when the gangs were from other estates like Kariobangi and Huruma, things could indeed turn violent. The police, who mostly just hung around watching the gangs threaten each other with fire and brimstone, would swing into action if the situation became bloody. When this happened, the estate would shut down. Jobo was startled out of his reverie by the sight of a ball zooming toward him. A series of loud gasps escaped from the nearby football field. The ball was coming straight at his head. Instinctively, he bent down. The ball whizzed by, just an inch from his head. He somehow stopped it with his right foot, bouncing it over his head and over his waiting left leg. Then he flipped it to his right leg and hit it back into the field, all this time carefully watching the bag in his right hand. Whoa! A wave of admiration crossed the field. A few people clapped. 
The field was filled with spectators and football players in kits of different colours. He had been so deep in his thoughts that he hadn't even noticed he had strayed into the field. He clutched the bag tightly and crossed the road again. He was now facing the direction he had come. If someone was following him, they would realise that he had been walking in circles all along. He took another quick glance behind him. There was nobody. Satisfied, he slid into an alley. A few moments later, he emerged into a small clearing. On his left side, a black gate stood high in the sky, only matched in height by a wall built with roughly hewn stone. The colourful bougainvillea leaves peered above the stone fence. In many parts, the leaves overhung the wall, crawling almost to his height, leaving an uneven, unkempt shape. Opposite the gate, on all four sides, were buildings facing the road, away from the black gate. The only way into the compound was the alley Jobo had come in through. Nobody knew who the owner of the plot of land in the middle was. In the estate, there were such pockets of land, marooned for the moment, until someone claimed them. Jobo picked a small stone and hit it against the wall. Three sharp raps. He glanced toward the alley. Every time he came here, while waiting for the gate to be opened, he always expected someone to jump in from the alley. He always had a knot in his stomach, which was only unwrapped by a cough on the other side of the fence. Amani, he mumbled the password, peace. There was a slight pause on the other side of the gate. And then Jobo heard a click as a key turned in the lock. Then the welcome sound of a bolt sliding out of place. The gate opened slowly and someone peeped past Jobo's frame and toward the alley. You are late. The man said plainly as he stepped back to let Jobo in. The statement was neither an accusation nor a lament. You're lucky I even came, Jobo responded. There's a game this afternoon. Torna. Torna? So your tournament is more important than us? Jobo did not look in any way perturbed. Instead of answering, he pushed past the younger man and walked toward the house. He could feel the guy's eyes on him. The house was old. It was not like many of the Dandora houses which were multiple stories. Its wall was lined with plaster and smothered with white chalk. If you looked closely, you could see the finger shapes of the people who did the plastering. There was a small compound which could fit two cars, but it was clear that no vehicle had driven into the compound in the recent past. A small, freshly weeded and watered vegetable garden stood where ordinarily there would be a car park. Rows of healthy-looking kale and spinach stalks waved cheerfully. With his left foot, Jobo kicked aside a watering can, perhaps more forcefully than was necessary. The younger man walking behind him clicked his tongue as he picked up the can and placed it aside. Above the metal door was a small handwritten sign. Andaki. Ah, finally! Someone said from inside the house, even before Jobo went in. He recognized Roba's voice. Before he could respond, a few other shapes emerged from somewhere in the house. Within a second, a bag was yanked away from his hand and its contents removed. There were four large bowls, 
and two large flasks. Kuna nini leo? Robert asked as he smacked his lips. What is there for us? But he clearly was not waiting for a response. He was already opening the lid. You guys are hyenas. Jobo relaxed into a sofa as the four young men congregated around the dining table behind him. The sofa was not comfortable. Age had eaten into the cushions and he could feel the hardwood press into his bones. Someone else came from the kitchen with several plates. Wazi Jobo, he complimented Jobo who received the gratitude with a wave of his own hands. They ate ravenously, none of them speaking. For a long time, only the chewing and cracking of bones could be heard. It was as if Jobo did not exist. There were five men in total. The tallest of the lot, the one who had opened the gate for him was called Brio. Only his mother called him by his proper name, Brian, and only when she was angry at him, which was most of the time, by the way. Brio was 15 years old and until recently was informed too at the local secondary school. Next to him was Max. At 25, Max was the oldest. He was short and dark, and both sides of his face were lined with sideburns most likely shaped at Sam's Kinyosi, the barbershop near Grao that everyone went to. Max didn't speak much, but when he did, you knew why. He had a pronounced stutter. Next to Max was Boi. Boi really hated being called that and was always insisting, sometimes using his fist, that his real name was Danson. But everyone called him Boi for as long as anyone could remember. It was one of those pet childhood names that stuck. He was slightly plump, unlike the others who were all lean. Over the course of the week, Jobo had heard a lot of taunts about the man-boobs that protruded from Boi's chest. Roba was tall and thin, just like Jobo. People always confused them, especially because they wore the same hairstyle, cropped short. Most people said that the two brothers had their mother's sharp and fierce eyes and eyebrows that seemed to curve inward, accentuating their fierce looks. Once, someone had suggested that they shave differently to avoid the confusion. But the suggestion died a natural death because neither of them was willing to change his hairstyle. Umzai, pass me the salt. Someone said. Jobo looked up and saw Max wearing a murderous look on his face. Max shot back. You the old man. Jobo smiled. He had been told that previous day, Max had used the fact that he was older than everyone else in the house to win an argument, and now they were using this as an insult. Kim, the guy with one missing tooth, said, Your mum is a very good cook. Well, I will pass her the compliment, Jobo replied. His mum would be very happy to hear it. Kim continued, At least this week I can sleep in peace. Last week was something else. There were a few gaffers from around the table. But what happened last week? Jobo asked nonchalantly. He only wanted to make conversation. Otherwise, it didn't really matter to him. The kind of food we were eating. Hmm. Kim answered. 
you wouldn't know what it was until you ate it. And at night, you couldn't sleep because of thinking, if I die now, what will have killed me? Kwenda uko. Another man dismissed him. We all know your mother doesn't know how to cook, and during her week, she had to bite. Ah, <laughs> that's better, Kim shot back. Better than to cook mashakura. The room erupted into laughter. Mashakura was an increasingly popular yet ridiculed mixture of imaginable dishes served in one large plate. Brio and Kim picked up the dishes and went to the kitchen. Jobo remembered that the previous day, it was Max and Bowie who had cleaned up. Roba wiped the table with a very white cloth. You guys have fascinating lives here, Jobo said. Out there you're all macho. It's hard to imagine the lot of you washing dishes and cleaning up. Life happens, Boy said, having to choose between washing dishes and being in a six-by-six six hole. I'd rather wash the dishes over and over again. Then he stood and headed into the bedroom. Jobo walked into the sitting room, where a collage of photos was pasted in a faded notice board. Some of the photos had come off, leaving patches where they had been pinned. Why do you always look at that photo? Roba asked him. I don't know. It just makes me wonder. Why did this man carry his things? These photos must hold a lot of memories for the owner of the house. The owner of the house and Jobo only guessed it because he was the common feature in most of the photos, was stout with a balding head. Maybe we will never know, Roba speculated. It is said he moved with only a suitcase to his upcountry home. Anyway, how is the tournament going? We are playing our first game today, Jobo told him, then added, that is, if we can find enough players. Kocha was looking for more players today. Kocha is so dedicated. Perhaps too dedicated. It might disappoint him. And if it does, it will destroy him. Football is all he has. Let's hope we succeed, Jobo said. If this time we make it further up the league, who knows what would happen? You know, they're scouting for talent for the national team. Roba nodded. There was a fight here yesterday. He said out of the blue. What? Why? People ganged up against Boi. Why would they do that? Boi is not one of us. Everyone hates him and he knows it. What do you mean, one of you? Aren't you all here for the same reason? To stay safe and alive? Yes, we are. But all of us are here for the wrong reason. Jobo wanted to react, but stopped when he noticed that his brother was going to say something more. The rest of us are victims of mistaken identity, Jobo. But he's a Gundi. He's a gangster? Yes, Remember the petrol station that was robbed in Westlands a few months ago, where four attendants were shot dead? He was involved. Whoa. Do the mothers know? They do. He's only here because his mother is from Dando and a member of Mama Bora. Otherwise, we'd have thrown him out of the Andaki. Jobo looked away. You don't throw people out of the Andaki. That's why it's called Andaki. It's a safe house. Robert turned his head down. For a long time in Jobo's life, he had seen Robert as the big brother, the dependable bully, 
the one who had harassed him all the time, but also defended him from other bullies in school, the one his mother always trusted to take care of him. Now, to see him broken, cloistered up at the Andaki, was something nobody wished to behold. Jobo removed the headphones from the machine. Another Kalamashaka song was playing. The three men were silent. These musicians were always ahead of their time, Max said. Everyone nodded in agreement. But they lived in better times, Brio added, as he walked to a water dispenser beside the dining table. At least those days, all you feared from the police was being handcuffed. Nowadays, if I come for you, Nikukangwa. He flashed his forefinger across his neck to gesture slitting. So, what do you guys do every day, hold up here? Nothing much, Kim said. We play games, sleep, watch movies and sleep some more. I know you're about to say that we must be living the life, doing all those things that our mothers will be haranguing us about at home, but nothing is further from the truth. There is nothing worse than being holed up here. Max came in at that moment and jumped in. There is a dartboard outside that we can't play lest passers-by hear us. It's a prison without the wardens. You boys need to stop whining. Boy's voice cut in. He was standing in the doorway, arms akimbo. Would you rather be dead? The silence was enough to answer him. Because that is what awaits you outside, beyond the gate. Nobody spoke. Yes, he was now emboldened. You should be on your knees, thanking God for everything and praying for more miracles like for the owner of this house not to decide to bring it down and build apartments like the rest are doing. You need to pray for the women of Mamabura to be more united and for them to continue to make more money to pray for the rent and food. Otherwise, you will be all be felt like houseflies. When he was agitated, his man boobs shook even more. Jobo would have smiled were it not for the gravity of the situation. When he saw that his words had hit home, Boy exclaimed, Aya, why are you not on your knees? This relaxed the air and a few people smiled. I didn't know you to be religious, Robert said. I am not religious, the young man responded. I mean, not in the way other people are. But I have seen things that have shaken my entire belief system. How come, out of all my friends, I was the only one spared? Why me? Someone said that everyone has a day written down when he will go, Kim said. That was perhaps not your day. Or there is this thing about purpose, Jobo said. They say everyone has a purpose. Maybe you have not achieved yours. Boy looked at each one of them with his piercing eyes. Why did Kisi spare me? Hmm? Why didn't he shoot me like he shot the rest? Yet all of us were lying down waiting for the bullets to sputter our brains away. 
Jobo noticed that everyone looked toward the door. The mention of the name Kisi had a drastic effect on everyone in Dandora. Jobo had never met Kisi. Not many people had seen him. It is said that the only people who had seen him did not live to tell others what he looked like. That is why those who have been through the other end of Kisi's gun and lived to tell the story were treated specially here, as if they had returned from the world of the dead. Kisi was loved by few and hated by many. His reign of terror over Dandora and other Eastlands estates had spanned more than ten years. Jobush started hearing about him when he was still in low primary school. If a child misbehaved, the mother would threaten to call the policeman Kisi and the kid would behave instantly. Eastlands had been, for a long time, home to many vigilante groups, from the 42 brothers to, lately, the Mongiki. The latter was a semi-religious outfit that had, in the early days, aims of taking the people back to their traditional culture, but it is said that the group, known for their dreadlocks, morphed from cultural religious to a political outfit. And when the politicians were tired of them or achieved what they wanted, they turned their backs on them. Now its members had to go underground because the police came at them with guns blazing. For some, Mungiki was evil incarnate. They controlled everything from shops to the public transportation system. Before you brought your matatu, public service van, to any route, you had to give them protection money. And each day, one had to pay money to their agents, failure to which your matatu would be burned to ashes. For others, Mungiki was the savior. In an area unpoliced by the government, Thugs had reigned supreme. The Mungiki, as a vigilante group, was said to reduce petty crime in the estates, and it was said that none of his members went home hungry. They would ensure that those who could drive got squaddy. A short round trip assignment to a vehicle while the official bus driver took a lunch break. Jobo remembered hearing the clip of a government minister on TV declaring a shoot-to-kill order against the Mungiki, which had grown so huge that it even distributed electricity stolen from the national grid. We will wipe them out. I cannot tell you today where those who have been arrested are. What you will be hearing is that there is a burial tomorrow. If you use a gun to kill, you are also required to be executed. Perhaps Jobo was too young then to understand the gravity of this statement. He only heard about it from his school teacher. But he was not too young to experience the impact of it. Kisi was born out of it. For a lot of young people in Dandora, it was a case of when, not if, Kisi and his people would come for you. So the Mungiki went underground. They no longer paraded around with their trademark dreadlocks and snuff-sniffing ways. When they came for Roba, Jobo was in school, so he was spared the trauma. Apparently, one of Roba's friends had been implicated in a mugging. What Roba told Jobo later was that his friend Jack had bought a second-hand phone and it turned out that the phone had been stolen, so the police tracked it. When they arrested Jack, they made him name his best friends just before killing him and Roba's name was saved in the stolen phone. Jobo was told that it was his mother's cries that stopped the policeman from shooting his brother. At the last moment, Kisi had decided against killing Roba. Get out of here, Rudi Ocha! Go back to your ancestral home. 
If I see you here again, I will shoot you. You hear? It is said that the petrified robber nodded desperately and then remembered something. I don't have an ancestral home. I was born here and my mother was born here as... This infuriated the policeman so much that he cocked his gun and aimed at Robert's head, which elicited another anguished cry from the mother. Wait! Don't shoot! I will take him! I will take him back home! <laughs> People in Dandora still speak today of Jobo's mother's bravery. Who would dare grab Kisi's pistol? And that is how Robert found himself in Andaki. Brio had a different story. He met an uncle on his way to school. The uncle, who seemed to be in a crazy rush, gave him a bundle to keep in his school bag. I will come for it later. The uncle said, before running off, Brio was to learn later, when the police came to pick him up at school, that underneath the banana leaves and wrapping paper was a gun and that they had shot his uncle dead. Briar wasn't on the list of the people that police were eyeing. Still, he had to leave because he had been entered into Kissy's notebook. Very few people knew about Andaki. If Roba had been taken to the safe house, neither he nor Jobo would have been aware of its existence. Jobo knew that Mama Bora was a group drawn from the women of Dandora. What he did not know was that each month they contributed toward rent for Andaki. It served the people who had no upcountry home to go to when ordered to by the police. And each week, one of the women whose sons were at the safe house provided food for all the occupants. Bullets who fly, babies who die, mothers who cry, mosquitoes in a past Hey. I got to go now, Jobo said, standing up suddenly as if the song were a wake-up call. The game awaits. All right, Roba, Kim replied. He walked into the kitchen and brought out the bag of dishes. As always, we are very thankful, Brio said, as he stretched out his hand for a fist bump. The bag was lighter. Jobo glanced at Roba as he prepared to leave. His brother stood as well and led him out. All the best, Roba said. Perhaps you will get your big break soon and get us out of this estate once and for all. Jobo nodded. Kocha told us that you never know who is watching the tournament games. It could be one of the scouts. Roba opened the gate and ushered Jobo out. But a rush of footsteps made them pause. Before they could react, there was a blur of fast movement and the gate swung open wider. Roba immediately fell to the ground. There was another flash of movement and Jobo felt a gush of wind as a blow connected with his stomach. Stupid! Lala Chini! Get on the ground, came a rough order. Jobo looked up, still grimacing in pain. There were six or so men, he was not sure, standing over the two boys, each holding machine guns at the ready. He did not need to be told who they were. Lie down with your hands on your head. The boys quickly obeyed. From the corner of his eye, Jobo saw the men move into the house, but then they disappeared from his line of vision. He was about to raise his head to see what was happening with the sole of a shoe rammed into his skull. Stupid! Someone yelled above him. He actually felt his brain move, even as a thousand stars flew inside his head. 
He shut his eyes tightly to ward off the pain. Ochochinga! He heard Roba's urgent whisper, Stop being stupid. In another minute, Jobo heard a series of loud crashes and shouts from the house. Someone screamed. And then suddenly a gunshot split through the air. Jobo pushed his face deeper into the concrete. Orders were barked. Lala Chini! Lie down! Tokainje! Get out! Where are the others? Jobo felt several bodies falling next to him and heard their groans as they hit the ground. Here is the last lot, someone said a moment before another body hit the ground. Stupid fool, hiding in the ceiling. What kind of low-life criminal are you? They were ordered to lie on their stomachs, but with their hands on their heads. Jobo could not resist it anymore. He opened his eyes slowly. They were surrounded. Vijana! Young man, Leom Temakuni! They had said that when you see Kisi, you will know it. From the way the rest of the officers looked at him, it was obvious that the man who had just spoken was the squad leader, Kisi. He was middle-aged with a slight build. On his head was a red cap. He wore a leather jacket a size too big, blue jeans and Sahara shoes. Did you think you would hide here forever? He spat. Haven't you ever heard of the long arm of the law? Well, today you will know. You better start saying your last prayers. He cocked his gun. Afande, Roba spoke up, his voice shaking. Please spare my brother here. He was just bringing us food. Kissy folded his hands. Bringing you food, huh? Bringing food to a bunch of criminals is the same as being a criminal. He will go the same way as all of you. This was happening. He was going to be shot dead in cold blood. Afande, we have surrendered, Briar's trembling voice said. You can arrest us and we face the law. One of the other policemen laughed heartily. <laughs> arrest you! Keeping you alive will only increase the costs. And you know the government is cutting costs. All these boys are innocent, sir. Boy spoke solemnly. Let them go. They have never harmed anyone. Just follow the law. The only law we know is the law of the Lord Jesus Christ, Kissy told him. We don't judge people. <laughs> All we do is arrange for them to meet the Lord. <laughs> he laughed loudly. Jobo thought about the tournament. He saw Kocha peering earnestly at the gates of Grau, hoping to see him emerge. He thought about the Kalama Shaka song. Save me, my Lord, and my troubles, so my heart can be at peace. For some reason, Jobo's heart stopped fluttering in his chest. Even when he looked up and saw Kisi with a pistol aimed straight at his head, he did not flinch. A police radio crackled. Kesi pulled out a phone from somewhere inside his leather jacket and with one free hand it pressed a few buttons. His fierce eyes never left Jobo, even as he placed his phone.
into his ear. You boys, he said, I keep telling you, when I warn you to go up country, I really mean it. Do you think I enjoy shooting you? No, sir, came the chorus from everyone on the floor. Then why don't you listen to me? The person on the other end of the line seemed to have answered, because Kisi turned away and began listening. Affirmative was the only one word he said. Then he disconnected the phone and pushed it into the pocket. He asked them as he pulled the safety catch. Nobody answered the saying until one of the other policemen finished it. He who is not disciplined by his mother is dealt with by the world. Okay, Kisi said, glancing at his colleagues. We're a merciful lot, so we will give you one more chance. Get up and run for your lives. What? Just like that? Jobo heaved himself up, and then he saw that Kim and Roba had done the same, but the rest of the boys continued lying on the ground. He hesitated. Don't, Max whispered urgently. Don't run. He was no longer stuttering. They want us to run. Then they will shoot us in the back and tell everyone we escaped from lawful custody. Jobo looked at the policemen and saw them exchange glances. Kathy took a step toward Max. Then he bent over and pressed the gun into his forehead. Young man, you are clever. You think anybody cares how you died? What's that? Another policeman called out, looking towards the gate. Kissy stiffened. A loud wail cut through the air. It was a woman's voice. Ooh-wee! Ooh-wee! Came a different voice. Ooh-wee! Another voice joined in. And suddenly, the whole air was filled with dozens of cries. Ooh-wee! Ooh-wee! The voices were coming closer. The policeman looked at Kissy indecisively. He stood up and turned toward the gate, his pistol straight in front of him. They pushed him back into the compound. Dozens of women screaming, Ooh-wee! pushed him even further aside as they took a moment to survey the scene. Ooh-wee! You will not kill our children while we watch! One woman screamed at the policeman. He took a step back. Then all the policemen took a step back. The women came where the boys lay. They lay spread-eagled, shielding them. Shoot us first! Another woman dared the policeman. The policemen looked at Kisi with consternation. For the first time, he had a stupefied expression on his face. The women continued screaming, Oh! More women were screaming outside and more women were coming into the compound and more women lay over the boys. Kisi lifted his pistol in the sky. Jobo shut his eyes tightly. Bullets who fly, babies who die, mothers who cry, masikus in a pass by. Bullets who fly, babies who die, Mothers who cry, masikus in a pass-by. When Jobo opened his eyes again, he saw that Kisi still had his pistol in the air. He thought the man was going to shoot in the air to disperse the women. Instead, he walked slowly towards the boys on the ground. 
The women hugged them tighter and let out louder screams. Slowly, Kissy crouched low. I will be back, he said softly to Jobo, and then he stood up, made a lighthouse scan of the compound, and nodded to the other policemen. They all walked out slowly. Nasikuzina pass by. Nasikuzina pass by. Nasikuzina pass by. Andaki was read to you by the Kikombe and written by Kinyanjui Kombani. Kinyanjui is a writer, banker, learning specialist, and entrepreneur. He was the recipient of the 2018 Code Bert Award for Young Adult Fiction. He has also been recognized with the Outstanding Young Alumni Award by the Kenyatta University and was featured in the Top 40 Under 40 Men survey for his contribution to Kenya's creative writing scene. Andaki is the fourth and final short story we are featuring from the recently launched anthology Nairobi Noir that is edited by Peter Kimani and published by Akashic Books. My thanks to Akashic Books for allowing us to feature four of the 14 stories from the book. Nairobi Noir is part of Akashic Books Noir series that was launched in 2004. You can visit their website akashicbooks.com for more details on titles in the series and their other publications. If you have a short story that you'd like to be considered for the podcast, please email us at producer at fingerpiano.co.ke. Please make sure your word count is between 750 to 4,500 words. Nipe's Story is available to download wherever you get your podcasts from. You can follow Nipe's Story here on SoundCloud, on Facebook and on Twitter. We are at Nipe underscore story. Nipe's Story is taking a much needed break and we'll be back in early August. Thank you for your support, for listening and stay safe. See you in August. Nipe's Story is a finger piano production. <laughs>